KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. I'm Mark Lano. This is the Henry George Program, the show all about transit, land value uplift, and community benefit. Take the program. We have back on Derek Sagehorn of East Bay for Everyone and now Common Ground, California. He co-wrote a white paper on transit value capture and is working on a project to do transit value capture for the ambitious Link 21 project. We'll talk all about what this project is, some of the land value capture history of Bay Area transit, some of the hurdles we all face today, and what the roadmap is going forward. Uh, but without further ado, let's just in things. So welcome uh, back, Derek. Thanks for having me, Mark. Yeah, you were on. Uh, you were on in the election season back in 2020. We're talking Prop 15. We're talking about value capture. Uh, I don't think you were involved with Common Ground California at that point. Is that right? Because it's, it's a kind of a newish venture for uh, uh, for the California value capture uh, nerds out there. Yeah, I was. Uh, I think I just started working with Common Ground at that point. But you know, we, there's a lot of there's a lot of work that's been done since then, um, kind of of uh, re reinvesting in the California Common Ground is an org that's been around for I actually don't even know how long, but you know they they were active in the early '60s, as far as I can tell, and you know I guess we can get into it, but like around the initial BART planning for the Bay Area, and so I think there's a venerable t- tradition there, and and we've been there's a number of people and. You know, Oakland, Berkeley, Santa Cruz, San Jose, San Francisco, Sacramento, who are really trying to uh, kind of do a new generation of kind of Georgia's organizing in California. Yeah, I think the reputation uh, Georgia's might have is that they are either kind of old bearded cranks who, you know, annoy people with kind of lofty plans or they're a bunch of memers on, you know, Twitter. Uh, but like, you know, really, uh, you know, no more than like you know, 40 years ago, really pre-Jarvis, there was actually a pretty well-organized political block that actually got a lot of, you know, kind of stuff done, uh, elected a lot of people, et cetera. But uh, we are talking transit value capture. Uh, in particular, uh, Link 21 is a very exciting thing uh, introduced this year. Uh, I thought offhand it was Link 21 because it was introduced in 2021, uh, but in fact, uh, it refers to our 21-county mega region, which I never heard of until I looked this up. But uh, yeah, talk about uh, Link 21. Uh, you know, what is it? Uh, why should everyone be excited about this thing? Yeah, so Link 21 is, represents kind of, I think, a shift in thinking about transit investment in Northern California. Uh, for the longest time, um, like BART has been the kind of uh, in the business of doing these uh, extensions to Antioch or Dublin or San Jose, um, or the airport, for example. But, um, you know, during this last 10 years, I, I think there was a real realization that that existing model of investment was just not meeting our needs. Because, first of all, these extensions, um, they're really expensive, but they don't necessarily add that many riders, because you're a lot of them are kind of extensions along freeway medians. Um, They're going into suburban communities that have resisted multifamily housing. And it's really more focused on economic development or getting cars off of our freeways than it is about moving people to jobs and opportunities and and all the kind of stuff that actually transit should be about. Um, And so during that, this last decade, we saw, you know, massive um, kind of 
congestion on the BART corridor going between uh, Oakland and San Francisco, for example, the Transbay tube. And, you know, the the peak train getting off of Embarcadero in San Francisco from Oakland, you know, it was cattle car. Um, you know, we had, it might've looked like Tokyo subway, not necessarily without the Tokyo frequencies. So we just had to crush loads. Um, and I think planners, policymakers, electeds, organizers, all started realizing that our existing system can't just continue to grow externally with these extensions is that we need to both reinvest in the kind of the core, but also if we're going to do extensions, they can't just be freeway median extensions. We need to use, uh, we need to start thinking of it more of as a regional rail network and not just as a commuter uh, S-Bahn, which uh, like the German style. Uh, yeah. type of train. And so with that, I, there's just been a shift. And, and so MTC, the Metropolitan Transportation Commission, which is the, the, the planning organization for the Bay Area, started 2015, 2016, really thinking about a second Transbay tube. And they realized that the level, like how much it's going to cost, it's like, it's not, not enough to, if you're going to do this, why not? It doesn't really justify the expense to just do a BART tube. Um, they're thinking about doing a regional rail tube. So potentially Caltrain could connect up with Capital Corridor and, and different regional rail. And so suddenly like what became kind of a core investment started to to, to grow in scope to now what we have is this Link 21, which is uh, right now it's being, the lead agency is BART. Um, and, you know, BART is also a, a part owner of Capital Corridor, which is a, a public rail agency, regional rail agency between San Jose, Oakland and Sacramento and, and some, I, I didn't realize I didn't realize that I thought they were just working together. Well, what, what what's the story with that? They they acquired I think it. Bart has that Bart has like a third of the seats on Capital Corridor board board huh. along with Sacramento, Yolo, Placer. Uh, is there a, maybe one other county in there? Um, but so they they started thinking regionally of like how can we you know we know that more and more people are. Um, being displaced from the Bay Area to move it to live in Sacramento Valley and making these commutes. Um, and oftentimes, you know, they're driving along um, I-80 and, and just, you know, miserable, just a miserable lifestyle to have to, you know, live in Vacaville or um, West Sacramento or Elk Grove and drive to the Bay Area to, to work a low or medium wage service job. So uh, thinking about like, as those kind of patterns change, uh, we should start thinking about a rail system that's frequent, that's reliable, um, but it also is priced according to, um, you know, it's not just for commu white collar commuters, it's for people who are making trips between, you know, different regions. Um, and they also started to think about including um, Sac Santa Cruz County and Monterey County, because, um, you know, there are trips, increasingly number of people who are making trips between, you know, those places on the coast and uh, Silicon Valley. So it's really starting to think about, like, if we're going to make, like, these high level investments, you know, a, a new tube between Oakland and San Francisco is like, how can we leverage that to benefit not just Oakland and San Francisco, but the entire, like, nor urbanized nor Northern California? Um, and so that's where we're at now. Yeah, and I think that's that's the thing about, you know, BART, uh, you know, kind of was trying to connect the entire periphery of, you know, this kind of region. But, you know, partly because the region never grew with transit, we don't have just 
the nine county region. Uh, yeah, I mean, the 21 counties, the Bay Area, nine counties, then all the Sacramento counties. Then you have northern Central Valley all the way down to Merced and then Santa Cruz de Monterey. It's, you know, and yeah, there we have commuters for all of these. But in comparison to they, they did a comparison on this uh, Link 21 uh, study of like how far can you get in an hour on rail in like in Chicago or D.C.? You can get a pretty long way. But in the Bay Area, you're you're uh, you're really damn limited. It's like a little blob that barely gets you around the the bay itself. And uh, yeah, it's, it's an ambitious. Uh, you could say like holistic. I mean, if it really gets off, it could transform everything about the way transit works this entire region, as opposed to what you say like just our kind of little piecemeal additions here and there. So uh, it's huge, and a big part of it being huge is if they do all this. Uh, it could add literally trillions of value to uh to to the economies and the properties of of these of these areas, and that's where value capture comes in at the very very high level. I think probably most people know that like what value capture means for transit. But what's what's the pitch if you're trying to tell someone who knows nothing? What, what how would you pitch it? Yeah, I mean if we're contemplating um you know rough estimates of. Over, at least over $100 billion of rail investment for this plan, um, probably more than that, that level of investment is going to increase economic opportunity for, for someone who lives in Davis, someone who lives in um, Richmond, somebody who lives in Rockridge, to be able to go uh, maybe a one-seat or two-seat ride to Silicon Valley or to San Francisco or to uh, up to the state capitol or to, to work in um, Placer County and then com- commute down to San Francisco two days a week. And so suddenly like the locational value of wherever that place is, that's along that has access to link, the Link 21 system, like, you know, the homes, the apartments, the restaurants, the, the offices and all these places, the value is gonna go up. And, you know, we see that in the, the work of uh, Dr. Shusher Mathur, of uh, the San Jose State University Magneta Transportation Institute. He did a, a paper a couple of years ago that showed for the Warm Springs, Warm Springs uh, BART extension in Fremont that, that within a two mile radius of the extension, um, the land values increased over 10 years to pay that would have, I think it was $4.5 billion. The cost of the extension itself was 800 million. So yeah. if we had taken 20% of that increased value, I'm not saying that we had that 20% is on the table, but if we had taken 20%, we could have paid for the whole project through value capture. So that's just like, that's the, like, that's one station, right? And so thinking about the value that's on the table, I think is really important for Link 21 because, you know, otherwise that that's community creative value. Like, BART is a public agency. Capital Quarter is a public agency. Um, there, they have planning, construction, the development that's going to go up there near the bike lanes and and all that stuff. That's all generated by our kind of collective efforts. And unfortunately, in our existing system for so long, we've allowed the that value to be uh, appropriated by you know private landowners. And so the the, the pitch here is that rather than just letting those private landowners uh, get 100% of that value, is that the public um, should get a piece of it to help pay for the infrastructure, 
Um, and then we can kind of get into this later, but also to pay for like, you know, making the, the neighborhood better, uh, increasing yeah. affordable housing, bike lanes, um, bus bus lanes, and all the kind of, of things. So it, it's not just that, you know, the private landowners uh, benefit from that locational value, but the rest of the community, tenants, young people, people who are have disabilities that they can you know, have accessibility improvements, fix the sidewalks. Like these are the kinds of things that if, if, if value captures on the table, suddenly these fights about neighborhood planning or community planning or transit suddenly become, you know, you have a lot more money to play with. Yeah. It's a, it's a difference between treating it as kind of spending it on stuff and investing it in stuff. If you're just dumping a bunch of public infrastructure and then it's kind of like that money is lost and effectively it kind of is. You spend it, uh, and there's a lot of kind of theoretical stuff. You know, look at like Stiglitz's old, uh, you know, kind of models. There's a lot of the- theoretical reasons to believe that right now private landowners suck up basically all the public investment value of this infrastructure. Instead, if you do value capture, you're not spending it; you get it back. So really, you just do capital improvements. You know, is you're just kind of this is really what planning should be doing stuff to make stuff better because right now you know it's 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 not working out that way you mentioned you mentioned that this is actually what planning is i just want to like pee off that for a moment because sure so so often like we hear about planning and it's um the vast majority of planning that goes on in california for example is like homeowner asset management it's to ensure the value it's like big hoas yes um so it's uh, you know making sure that um additions are not uh, detracting from the values of of nearby homes. Um, And it's not community planning in any meaningful sense, either from a process standpoint of like making sure people feel heard or having a a source of control over what's happening in their neighborhoods. I mean, community inclusive of tenants and people who don't own homes, but also um, like the process, like the actual substance of like saying like, okay, we're going to make this park better um, and that maybe raise land values. And so in response, we're also going to invest in multifamily housing and affordable housing. Like none of that happens for the most part. And where it does, it's far and few between. But if we start thinking about value capture, like the, the idea of like this type of planning of value capture of holistic planning. That's like what early kind of English and German planners where we, where American planners took a lot of their ideas, things like just acquiring land to, around pub, public transit stations or around new infrastructure. That was key and integral to how they, they urbanized their cities. You know, they, they acquired land before they, you know, they put down the infrastructure that way they could actually really holistically plan what's going on. Unfortunately, in America, in California, we've kind of just like forgot about that whole part of the public land or the, of the value capture part of the equation. And what we did instead was just do zoning and then like setbacks and whatnot. And so it's like we like all the stuff that like English and German planners pioneered that, you know, America, America, in the same, it's the same as nowadays as Americans would go on their grand tour. Uh, at least the very affluent Americans would go on the grand tour to Europe and they'd see these great German and English cities, the, you know, the, the garden cities that were being developed. And they'd say, Oh, this is so great. We need to take some of this planning back to America. And unfortunately the real estate interests, the realtors and the landlord lobbies, 
they were so powerful. They're like, we'll take the zoning and then uh, the land value capture, the public land acquisition. Like, no, we don't need that. So getting the kind of like that that land, the, bringing the land issues back into planning is a way that we can, you know, really do planning as, a, as I think the idealists would want. But that's going to require a little bit of political will. Yeah, I mean, it's we do it almost entirely backwards. I mean, the idea is like, oh, you can do every person can do a lot to kind of tend their little garden, but you can't really plan a big infrastructure project. You know, that takes a big institution. And uh, we do it backwards where we just don't do the big institutions, but we like kind of have a bunch of busy buddies control everybody's, you know, like little parts of, of their lives. Uh, but, you know, as far as like big infrastructure projects, and none of this is old. I'm just like, you know, looking up. I, I just enjoyed this this speech uh, Barbara Ward, the economist, gave in 1968, back when BART was being spun up, uh, saying the Erie Canal at that point, 140 years before, uh, was financed largely by specially assessed taxes on the land whose its construction had very greatly enhanced. And that paid off the Erie Canal. And she was saying, uh, if the, if BART wants to do its job, it should have uh, land value capture districts around the 30 stations, and this would pay off BART. But uh, the the truth is, BART did not do that. They went to sales taxes. Uh, yeah, so uh, I mean, that's actually that's one of the interesting things. Um, Common Ground California, uh, you know, we have members who are around for that discussion. They, you know, there are um, young Georgia advocates um, who were going up to Sacramento to advocate. For a land value um, capture bill that was um, drafted and passed by Senator uh, Mills from San Diego, he's the, also the uh, author of the Mills Act for Historic Preservation. Um, and so they, you know, they they recognized that uh, the Bay Area was planning this massive uh, subway and commuter rail system that was going to increase land values. That there were issues with paying for it because. Um, you know, the feds helped out a little bit and the state of California helped out and there were some local taxes here and there, but there were still like the construction costs were increasing and they didn't have enough money to complete this system. And so there's this critical juncture in 1968 where BART was trying to figure out how they're going to actually you know, complete the system, complete the Transbay tube. And they passed two things. They, they passed a um, enabling legislation for a for a sales tax for the BART counties, uh, which were San Francisco, Alameda, Contra Costa. I think that was it at that time. Um, mm. And then they passed um, an enabling legislation for a land value taxation districts um, by Senator Mills. And in January, 1969, uh, the BART board had this decision before them. And um, with tasked with the tools of land value taxation, you know, the BART board essentially said, this is going to be too complicated. We don't want to fight all the landowners and, and do this to pursue this land value taxation. Um, we're just going to do the sales tax instead. Um, and, you know, that is, that that's one of those like, what if moments where, you know, you look at the BART stations that were built in um, the Bay Area, how much land value has accrued around those places in San Francisco and Oakland and Berkeley and Concord, Walnut Creek, um, and how much money we left on the table as a community. Instead, we taxed consumers with a sales tax for, for decades to pay for it. And it's a, it's a really big uh, missed opportunity. And I, I'll say like the, one of the BART board directors, director Rebecca Saltzman um, at a recent BART board meeting said that, you know, that was one of the biggest, like missed opportunities 
for Bart as an organization is that they did not pursue that, and that she said she doesn't she doesn't want Bart to make the same mistake again for Link yeah. Forty One. If there's one if there's one thing we have the advantage of now, it's that we kind of like I, I, if there's one real disadvantage to the modern moment, we are kind of stuck in stasis. Everything is a slog. Everything moves slowly. But at least we're not, like, really drowning. Uh, like, in the late 60s, I think one of the big things at the time was they were, like, rolling out BART. And I think they were panicking because they issued a bunch of bonds. But because inflation hit, the bonds' value got inflated away, effectively. Uh, and this was leading people to panic. Uh, and this, I think a lot of people there, like, you know, you talk about, you know, James Mills, uh, you have, uh, and Albert Rada were two state senators who were actually active in uh, Georgia's organizations at the time. You had uh, a radical Georgia's assessor down in uh, Sacramento, uh, Irene Hickman, but a lot of other people too, just uh, locals. Uh, Robert Tiedemann, uh, father of the economist Nick Tiedemann, uh, was, I believe, the president of Bay Area Citizens to Save BART. And he was telling them, it's like, oh, don't worry about inflation so much because even though your bonds got inflated away, your tax base is always increasing in time if you if you treat it right and that's you know that's one advantage of value capture districts they they, they spin up proportionally uh but uh yeah th- i guess through the 60s like they were they had this you know mills enabling bill uh and i like i'm, I'm reading through these articles uh, uh like just newspaper at the time and like it was just like what is going to get through uh, apparently one of the first things to pass was paying uh bridge tolls to go to bart which honestly taxing cars to fund transit. I'm for it. Uh, I believe it was passed both houses opposed by Reagan. So, uh, you know, that's great. One more reason we're stuck with bad stuff. Uh, But yeah, I think the sales taxes, apparently, I mean, one big reason is they're easy politics because they're regressive. They're kind of invisible. You kind of screw over poor people instead of, you know, rich, you know, connected people. Uh, the other thing is Bart threw a fit just saying it's like if you do these land value uh, assessment districts, we're going to be tied up in court for six years and we're going to like die before that. We're actually going to have holes in the ground and no Bart. Uh, so that was their excuse at least. Um, but uh, yeah, I've heard you like say before that you think that that was even just kind of coping and the you know it, it really what isn't that difficult. Uh, you know, it's no more than other cases. Stuff gets hot up in court. It happens for yeah. every single funding. Yeah, source. I was just saying, like there were there are hundreds of lawsuits filed against the Golden Gate Bridge um, in the 30s, um, and they resolved themselves and they built the bridge. So, yeah. uh, if there's a political will to do something, uh, I, I I think litigation is not really uh, you know either you either you want to do something you think it's lawful. Or you go get the law changed to to make sure it's lawful, or you don't. And so I, I like I've read some of that similar stuff from the Bart board. I think it was the Bart um, Council. Council, yeah. And uh, I I I find it kind of um, I found it kind of pretextual. Um, so you know, like it, it. But that's the thing is like they didn't have the political will at the time. So part of our job is to kind of do the public education and the public agitation to say like. No, this is worth the headache. Like it's going to be a headache to do something like this. I don't. I don't want to like um, pretend or otherwise be naive, but like I think it's worth doing, and that's kind of on us as advocates at California Common Ground is to say, like, you know, the landowners are going to scream. You know, they're going to threaten litigation. Uh, you're going to have to do all jump through all these hoops. But 
the alternatives just let this public value go away um, and then to you know have to go back to the voters when uh, your sales tax falters or if the construction costs increase so I, I just think it's uh, if you if you think it's necessary go make it happen is what I would say yeah I mean I think it's also like what was the low-hanging fruit at the time you know it wasn't the best choice to take but in some cases you could say the rise of sales taxes is like they're easy at first in the same way sprawl easy at first like oh let's not really deal with it you know people can do a short little commute and the problem is two things in time commutes got longer and longer highways got congested and you know there's no real dealing with this with the same toolbox in the same way sales taxes used to be significantly easier than they are now uh just in the last couple of years we had a sales tax, uh, you know, for transit fail at the at the ballot. It failed back in the 90s. You know, it's and we're I mean, a lot of people say we're like essentially the limit of how high sales taxes can go. I mean, maybe yeah. maybe not, but I, I could I can see the argument. Alameda County is definitely near the limit. Um, I, I don't think there's much room to give. Um, what, are you, what are you out there now? Uh, we're I think we're a quarter or an eighth of cents away from the 10 cent limit. Uh, okay. or the limit. And then uh, Contra Costa County had a measure J, which failed in March 2020, which would have been a transportation measure. And I'll just say, like, there was a there was prior to COVID, there was a um, ballot measure for to fund a, a second Transbay tube that was working its way through. And it was, it was sponsored by the business lobby. Um, and, you know, it was called Faster. And they were proposing 100% sales tax uh, for the nine county bay, bay region. It was going to raise 100 billion dollars. So like, there's no denying that, that like it can that 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 choice can raise a lot of money. But you know, regressive and, and there are all kinds of issues with it. But as soon as that measure J in Contra Costa County failed, they pulled it. I mean, they pulled it because of COVID. But also, I think because they see they saw that there was just a lot of dissatisfaction with uh, the transportation sales taxes. Um, as they're going. Yeah, and I think part of it too, like it's like who does it fall on? Who benefits? And there is like a reason to say that like right now we don't give access to transit equally. You know, being near transit is a luxury based on the fact that we've like we are under transited, you know, there's and but like sales tax fall on everybody. And that kind of sucks as opposed to it's really nice how surgical land value capture is. Bart had their report of uh, kind of how much the land value increases uh, when you're near one of their, some of their stations. And their report was showing like half a mile, it goes up to 15%, you know, for like, I believe this was a condo, whereas you go to five miles out, it's down to 1%. So, you know, it kind of just, you know, it's like it, you've gone effectively back to zero, which means you don't have to capture everything, capture certainly within five miles. But even if you go two miles, you get almost all of it. And that is you know, targeting the richest fat cat landowners out there in a way that is going to be extremely progressive to the community. It's, you know, not not easy to always make it happen, especially given uh, our, our bad constitutional amendments. But, you know, it's really powerful if you can make that happen. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, why don't, why don't you talk just a little bit about, I mean, I think Prop 13 is famous, but Prop 218 is one of the things that really screws people, you know, kind of over as far as uh, special funding measures as far as transit goes. And I think everything we do has to really view Prop 218 almost as the, you know, the, you know, the big enemy here. So just uh, introduce people to Prop 218 for those who don't know it. 
Yeah. So the 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 land value taxation districts that that were created by Bart were it's still been on the book. They were up on the books until about 2013. Um, they were a dead letter at that point, in part because of Prop 13, which essentially uh, outlawed ad valorem taxes, so a, a kind of a land value tax. Um, and then also, um, you couldn't re, uh, reconfigure the law because in 1996, California voters passed Prop 218, which uh, essentially just um, made the requirements for doing a special assessment district, which is ve very similar to land value taxation, uh, really onerous and really or, um, stack the deck in, in favor of landowners. So Prop 218 was a response to the fact that after Prop 13, you know, cities still wanted to grow. They still wanted to invest in infrastructure. They still wanted to add housing that required roads and, and um, sewers and lighting and parks and all these kind of stuff. So they needed to come up with a creative way to do it. And one way was to do uh, special assessments where uh, landowner, you're assessing a particular value um, for the benefit conferred, you're getting value back from the landowner. Um, and so there have been all kinds of constitutional um, provisions that kind of constrain that. Um, but it was a through the 80s, it was a very popular method to uh, for for cities and local governments to to raise money for infrastructure. Um, they could bond against it. Um, so th this is one of the things they did, for example, in Los Angeles when they were building the Red Line subway uh, to towards the valley is that they use uh, what's called a uh, benefits assessment district to capture the value around the stations there. And, the, you know, that helps pay for to, to finish that project. I'll just say that, that they didn't even, they only, they didn't tax any residential property in that. And they still paid for about 10% of the total mm. project cost. So like, again, leaving lots of money on the table, but like clearly they had a use for it there. Um, and, but, but as cities and local governments started to use a special assessment tool, the, the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association came back and they brought Prop 218, which um, kind of sorted out some definitions of what is a tax and what is a fee. And then it created also some um, all these these um, processes and procedures for for a special assessment district, which said that, like, you know, before. Uh, a city might just say, we're going to do this assessment, we're going to mail you a notice, and if 25% of the landowners uh, uh, protest, then we'll hold a vote at the city council, and that the, the city council can approve it from there. Like, that's kind of a, uh, that one is very, that, that, that process is much easier to deal with. This one essentially says, like, there's automatically an election. The landowner is, uh, like, is notified, and they, uh, if they get to, um, you know, it, it's also assessed based off of the voting for, for whether this is going to happen or not. It's based off of your, the value of your land. So if you That's have ridiculous. a lot more what? land value, then you, uh, then you have a bigger vote in these special assessment districts. Um, tenants can't vote. Uh, people yeah. who don't own property in the district are not allowed to vote in these elections um and that there it's just like through the process through all the way through the process it makes it really difficult and essentially special assessments just have not been used um in any quantity since then so that and that's why we see the kind of um people wanting to go back to tax increment financing to melarus to all these other tools that are also very onerous is because prop 218 um kind of put the straitjacket on special assessments and you know and Prop 13 put the straight jacket on property tax increases 
and ad valorem taxes. So we're really left with in, we're, with a there's a, we're bereft of tools to actually deal with infrastructure in a way where like the landowner would pay. Like we we're yeah. so if unless we start to identify that like Prop 218 is keeping us from doing these types of value capture, and so we start to come up with a strategy that says like okay, we need to change some things about Prop 218 and maybe Prop 13 to address this. We're we're going to be groping along for solutions and we just need to kind of identify that that is the obstacle and come up with strategy to overcome it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's when you read this in the late sixties and stuff, it's like, there was kind of an open field, like what's possible. And you hear the people who are the land value, you know, kind of value capture folks. And they're like one of many. And they say, Oh, not now. It's actually one of the, the great, like sad trombone pieces is that same Bart uh, uh, council says like, Oh, don't worry guys. And this is a quote, like, as the value of nearby land increases, the increase is added to the assessed value, which is subjected to general property tax and tan- tra- uh, transit district tax. It's like, oh, so- <laughs> sorry, sorry about that. That all, you know, within 10 years, that's not true. And I mean, and as you're saying, like, there's like loopholes to get around Jarvis, but then they keep on like closing the loopholes. And I think, you know, you could say like the land value capture people, like, is this a weird, like abstruse fight? that, you know, doesn't have, like, you know, massive popular intuition or appeal, maybe, but in a lot of ways, it's the head-on fight that actually can solve a lot of problems for a lot of people. I mean, compare that to, like, like the, like the SF strategy, you know, it's, it's just kind of, you find little ways to issue bonds on, like, affordable housing. And I'm reminded of something that Kim My Cutler wrote up, just saying that over a decade, uh, Real estate went up 280 billion with a B in total, and they got back uh, 910 million off of affordable housing bonds. And this is like they're oh let's like tax the billionaires, let's get this stuff. But you're like you're scraping back what is this, like a few percent off of this you know completely passive land speculation. It's like this I, is not just. Even tr- yeah, they're not even treading water in terms of affordability. The land values can continue to rise, and all they can do is, you know, it's like a uh, a pittance. Um, yeah. yeah, I think I think that that's the problem. Is like we we exist in the we all we live in Howard Jarvis's world. Um, until we escape from that, we're just going to keep fighting over bonds and sales tax and at each other's throats to fund things like affordable housing and transit. Until we can start to, you know, maybe not in all in all one fell swoop, but maybe we could do a tailored kind of repeal of some of these things uh, near transit and rail improvements. I think that can start to build the, co- the coalition that is building like inclusive growth for around these these rail stations and these transit investments. Um, but in, until we do that, like we're just going to be, you know, continuing to li- like Howard Jarvis is dead, but he's still haunting us. Yeah, it's like all the rule, all the different ways you can be ruled. Uh, what is it like a mortocracy ruled by a dead man? You know, yeah. it's like he is he is king still. So, I mean, what we at Common Ground, we're like what we're looking at is like what given that like Link 21 is proposing hundreds of billions of dollars in rail investment across this 21 county mega region, including just massive investments in San Francisco, Oakland, San Jose, where, you know, there's very high land values. There's lots of people that want to live there. There's lots of people that want to work there that we should start thinking about how we can, if we're, before we start doing that investment, we need to get our, 
our ducks in a row to be able to actually recapture that value. Um, and so that will require maybe some legislation and maybe some some ballot stuff to to uh, to take that on. And I think you know that that's daunting. I, I'm, I again, I'm not going to like say that it's easy, but you see this across the state, like the barrier is not alone. Los Angeles is doing an ambitious rail plan right now. Um, and they're adding a lot of service throughout LA County. Um, and it's funded primarily through their sales tax. Um, is it proposition M or Metro M? Um, but you know, with increasing construction costs with just generalized inflation, um, with, uh, other competing demands on like expand like people want to build more rail. Um, I think even in LA, there there are people at Metro and there are advocates that recognize that like land value capture could be uh, could help out in some of this planning and and not just for the 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 rail investment itself, but also in terms of affordable housing and anti displacement investment. Um, same thing in San Diego. San Diego just released a their their regional planning organization, Sandag. Um, just released uh, a draft plan for transportation investment, $160 billion, uh, with just massive expansion in rail capability, regional rail, uh, at, at like 120 miles per hour. Um, yeah. And if you're thinking about like that level of investment across the state, before we really start like putting, you know, before we re- like pull the trigger on this, we really need to get this, like how we're gonna capture the value uh, like that question figured out. Um, and so that, that's where we come from, come at it from is like, and we think that there's a coalition around this. We think that like, you know, people who benefit, who are transit riders, people who are affordable housers, um, labor, uh, service workers, all kinds of people stand to benefit from coming up with a, um, a way to pay for rail that doesn't rely just on con- uh, consumption taxes that that contemplates like uh investments in anti-displacement and affordable housing that that says that like the private landowners shouldn't just get all of that windfall that like some of it should go back to the community i think that that can be there there can be a coalition around that and the question will be just like you know how can we do it who can we get on board who are we going to fight against like i think you know howard howard jarvis taxpayers comes to mind um Especially in the light of the last Prop 15 campaign, you know, we came, uh, we came really close. You know, we lost by two or three percent, I think. And for that big of a crack at the Prop 13, I think you know that uh, people are. I think people are understandably a little um, saddened by that. But I think it tells you that that like the structure or like the philosophy of Howard Jarvis is um, it's losing steam. Yeah, it was it was a good coalition. Got pretty damn close, and I yeah, think uh, yeah, I think the cracks are showing. And so I think that if you can um, recreate the Prop 15 coalition on a on a small, it doesn't have to be on the same scale. It would be nice, but I don't think it has to be as big. But if you can try to reform that Prop 15 coalition as much as possible, I think that they could you know take on something like this. Um, and you know, so that is, I think that is the question for regional transit um, advocates for link 21 planners for BART for capital corridor for affordable houses like yeah how can we get something like this together because um, you know, otherwise we're going to just be looking at sales tax and then doing some bonds to fund affordable housing near transit and it, it'll just be the status quo 
Yeah, I, I think I think uh, I mean this might be a bit like controversial or something, but like I, I think like everyone has an idea like how politics works, and the you know it's like oh median voter, oh it's just kind of us uh, having power blocks, and I'm and power blocks are of course extremely key. You know you have to actually you know show your muscle, but you know I mean I think more and more you look at the nonprofits that kind of govern the backbone of of you know kind of Sacramento politics and beyond. And like there is like yeah, there's the muscle of kind of power blocks, but then there's like the the brains of the gurus and the other kind of nonprofit you know minds out there. And unfortunately, I think that's you know I think you talk about like real power blocks like realtors, Howard Jarvis, like that matters a lot. But I'm scared too of the fact that like there's a lot of inertia stopping our way, and the old guard thinks they know how to do value capture, and I would say they simply don't like i think like sf again examples of all bad things in the universe uh you look at stuff like choo choo calvin welch all the standard you know cast of characters uh they actually they like even like introduced a uh you know kind of some some like statements recently on kind of what they think value capture means and uh like you know quoting from there it's like ensure all policies that create value for landowners or developers recapture a significant portion of value in the form of affordable houses or low, for lower income people or equivalent financial resources dedicated to affordable housing production. And I'd say that sounds good. Like, oh, get money back from landowners. But what is missing here is it's, it's subtle. They capture it only when stuff happens. So every part of the nonprofit thing, they're all like, uh, they look at you know kind of a, a, a you know a, you know a phase change or like anything that changes they capture that edge, uh, but they don't actually capture the fact that just the status quo you need to also recapture this value on an ongoing basis, and that yeah. is what yeah and and they've 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 just failed AB fourteen oh one in the last week was the big Western Center choo choo value capture. Uh, thing uh, and it was a disaster uh, and and they failed which makes me like encouraged that you know kind of our bad nonprofits are kind of losing out and I think people who have a little bit of a bitter mindset are starting to win but uh, for uh, AB fourteen oh one let's just talk about this a bit uh, what what's what's you know give people the general rundown for people who didn't follow this news yeah so this is a, I think this is a really great bill this bill says that like you know cities. Um, for whatever reason have may have instituted parking minimums um, and they may have instituted parking minimums for new development near transit. And so this bill says that like in the interest of housing affordability um, of reducing vehicle miles traveled and greenhouse gases in the interest of making our streets and our communities safer and more pleasant places to live, we're going to say, you don't have to, you don't have to build parking in these developments near transit. And that's all it does. yeah, read Don Choup, uh, how parking minimums are one of the biggest blunders, but they also, they pass all over the place. This would preempt them, because like Berkeley got rid of them, San Francisco got rid of them, all these cities are like, but this would, at Sacramento, overturn the entire state, and this would be huge, and it's a, it's a tiny little bill, like you can read it in 30 seconds. Yeah, I mean, sometimes simplicity is, is good for something like this. Um, and so, I, so this bill, uh, um, the author is uh, Assemblymember uh, Laura Friedman from uh, Los Angeles. 
Um, and so she, you know, she's been working on this bill. It actually, the, a similar bill was introduced by then assembly member Nancy Skinner, I think back in 2011. Um, and that got killed by a very similar kind of nonprofit coalition led by the Western Center on Law and Poverty. Um, mm. And the rationale in 2011, the rationale in 2020 is essentially the same. They say that um, we need to capture the value um, for reducing parking parking minimums in the form of affordable ho- affordable housing for low income people, um, and you know I really want more uh, money for affordable housing for low income people. I want to build a lot more of it. I don't think setting parking minimums near transit and then bargaining them away on a case by case basis is a good way to go about that. And there's some really good. Um, studies written by studies and kind of persuasive articles written by uh, Professor Michael uh, Manville from UCLA, where he really talks about this idea of like pretextual zoning, the idea that like, we're going to zone for something that is objectively bad for the community or that is unnecessary. And then with the goal of bargaining in a way for something that we want. And the problem is that it's like, when you do that, if that's the status quo, if for whatever reason, the development economics don't work for that density bonus that you're trying to achieve they're just going to the developer is just going to build the bad thing that you're requiring them to do or not build at all and so rather than focus on like a you know zoning in or, or requiring these things that we know are objectively bad for our cities like big parking minimums near transit like we should just fund affordable housing or yeah the landowners like the incumbent landowners near you know, in a city or in a neighborhood that are benefiting from public infrastructure investment or just generalized rising land values to fund that affordable housing. Uh, One thing that Professor Manville notices in his uh, paper is that it's like with that kind of planning value capture mindset, the amount of parcels that you can capture value from is only like 1% at most per year that get redeveloped. But you're allowing ninety the other ninety nine percent of parcels that are not being developed in that particular year, the value that accrues to those just from population growth or infrastructure investment is going uncaptured, and so this focus on planning value capture to the exclusion of all other potential land value capture is really missing the forest from the trees, especially for parking minimums near transit. Yeah, it's all about baseline. It's like, where is the baseline and what do you depart from the baseline and how do you capture it? And you listen to, you know, Calvin Welch in early 70s kind of laid it out. He said, the plan is we downzone and then when it departs from our lowered zoning, we recapture some value for community benefit. And as I was saying earlier, the amount that San Francisco recaptures is minuscule. It's tiny. It just, it's, uh, you can even see it make, it sounds like it makes some sense. It just doesn't work. Compare that to, and this is the thing, like, so what's the baseline? The baseline for Western Center, Choo Choo, all these places, all these nonprofits is, you know, everyone parks everywhere. It's low density. You know, it's, it's a climate catastrophe. It's the baseline. It's like, well, we're okay with that. That's the, you're, that's, that's our position. If you take anything that moves us away from car-based low, like you know, low density sprawl land, then you're going to have to pay up, buddy. And like that's, you know, compare that to the Georgist, you know, value capture. The kind of the general land value capture paradigm is what's the baseline? The baseline is effectively land prices are zero, everybody shares, and if 
if it goes up at all, like if basically there's any private landowner value, we tax that back. So like yeah. the baseline is actually the perfect place to be. Everybody is sharing community value and then we tax away uh, kind of private you know, land speculation. As yeah, opposed I, I think to really, the baseline I think, is, is bad. Yeah, I think your point about the baseline is really important because it's like we don't exist in a we don't exist in the, the neutral state. Right. Like we exist in our, our built environment is inherited from generations and those generations yeah. built a um, they built regional uh, conglomerations, uh, cities and metropolitan areas that are uh, segregated by race and class that are heavily automobile dependent, that have toxic uses, that are um, just um, poorly planned, um, that are just falling apart in some places that have been disinvested. And we just have all these things that are ailing with our um, with our cities, with our regions. Um, and so if your primary focus for value capture in that, like that, that's our baseline, if your primary focus is getting all the value you can in every situation for the change, rather than trying to focus on overall value, then that is simply just reifying the status quo with a, like a, a smiling face. Um, yeah. So in, in my mind, like, you know, we if we got to a place where um, we were, you know, we had less class and race segregation. If we got to a place where um, there was frequent and abundant transit everywhere, where it was walkable, where there was multifamily housing in the vast majority of neighborhoods in the Bay Area, I would be like, you know what, we should capture more of the value for this new development. You know, we should try to be more, um, you know, maximalist in our demands for new value created. But if we're doing so Greenfield, far, yeah. We're, we're so far away from that. I just don't, it seems to me to be like, the the. you read that quote from Choo Choo, I just want to point out that their ask is not for landowners to pay for the value, con, uh, to pay for value conferred. It's for developers and landowners. And like, yeah. you notice the, the order of that, right? Um, so in my mind, like, they've just got it completely backwards in terms of the priority is that our priority should be get the value from landowners. And then to the extent that as we're, you know, conferring value to, um, to you know, development sites, you know, we should take a piece of it, but we shouldn't be focused on like maximize, like, you know, taking as much as we can, because, you know, if we we're in such a, uh, state to be frank that like, I'd, I'd I want to see that change occur. Yeah, I mean, uh, California is an unfortunate place right now insofar as the people who, like, essentially are the, like, kind of uh, the left, the equity folks, are small-c conservatives. De facto, they want to maintain. And this kind of comes from maybe, you could say, kind of the, like, 1970-era, kind of, like, Earth Day, new left perspective on, like, don't do change, change is bad. And I think... Unfortunately, I have a lot of boomers who are like, I'm remembering the strip malls in 1972, and that's good to me, and they used to be like that forever. And like, okay, I get, I get why people would think that, but it's not an equitable, you know, f environmental future. It is just, you know, it's a, it's a conservative, nostalgic, status quoist mindset. And I think Link 21, this is something with change. It's change we need. And I think we need nonprofits that are 
that are thinking about how do we leverage change and not how do we oppose change. And uh, I think, honestly, there's there's good nonprofits that are not part of this bunch. And I, I, I'm looking forward to them being part of this new constituency. Yeah, uh, and I'll say that, like, I'm some of the, like, some of the an, an initial, you know, the Link 21 planning process is very early. Um, but I attended a, a panel uh, about the kind of like the, the, the early stages um, with uh, recently uh, hosted by Bard and Link 21 and stuff like that. And um, I was really impressed with some of the comments from Transform. Um, that it's a kind of a transit equity focused nonprofit and their CEO Darnell Grigsby had some really great comments about it. it's like we need that growth because without like growth and like equity baked into the growth the status the inequities of status quo will remain the same like we're not yeah. like you need if, if we have an inequitable status quo like that's not to say that like it's it's guaranteed that growth will lead to equity but the growth must occur and the change must occur if you're ever going to get there. And I just thought that was so, um, I just appreciate that perspective so much. If you have that, um, if you have that abundant mindset, then I think um, you're going to be, you're going to end up more often than not in the better, make better kind of calls on, on how the, all these kind of questions um, lay out. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I, I think we've had 50 years of, kind of woke conservatism i think it, it, the inflection point is coming because we're running out of we're running out of breathing room uh, but let's talk about like just a little bit more about uh the kind of political fights to be had in this because we're talking about what are the enemies prop 13 the ban on ad valorem taxes prop 218 affecting both special taxes but especially all these different value capture districts uh and those can be taken head on and uh, that would be, you know, I think, and I think we're making, you know, a case. Both of us, they they need to eventually. But there are low hanging fruit that people are picking up along the way. A few years ago, uh, you look at AB twenty nine twenty three. This is about BART leveraging transit oriented development on their land, and this is, you know, I think a good win win out of the gate. So I want you to talk a little more about uh, about that bill. Yeah, AB twenty nine twenty three. Um, that that one was. Uh... Actually, that bill occurred the same year or was introduced the same year as AB or SB eight two seven, which was the big transit oriented development bill. And so I think, I think that's one of those bills that really benefited from the furor around SB eight two seven. You know, this bill essentially gave BART um, uh, land use authority up to seven stories and a certain floor area ratio, and no parking requirements for parcels that they own within a half mile of BART stations. Um, and, you know, your very typical NIMBY jurisdictions like Lafayette, Orinda, and uh, et cetera, you know, very much opposed to it, you know. Um, and, you know, the assembly member for the Republican assembly member from uh, Pleasanton, um, you know, got up and, and opposed it. And, you know, there was definitely like Hillary Clinton talking about super predator vibes uh, in her comments in the floor speech for this against this bill. Um, so very much like a, a bill that that was very divisive, but it is really helping BART to accelerate and de develop its parcels. And, you know, it has a requirement, I think, of um, they have a 35% affordability requirement throughout the system. And each site needs to have at least 25% affordable. And many of them are going over um, over that percentage. Um, so it's really for, you know, for a lot of cities, it represents a great opportunity to both like add 
um, apartments like very close to BART. So BART can get more riders, but also drive affordability, uh, walkability, um, you know, open up uh, some of these quarters that have just been surface level parking lots instead of yeah. apartments and shops and uh, places, to, <laughs> places to enjoy parks and whatnot. Um, so really trans- transforming some of these communities in really positive ways. And so right now, like BARD is focused really on developing these parcels uh, in North Berkeley, um, at the Ashby Station, um, in El Cerrito, and I believe in um, Warm Springs. So they're they're, they're kind of going through this list. And ultimately, we need to like get to a place where BART is not just developing their existing parcels, which are oftentimes just kind of parking lots or leftover land from the construction of the original system, but allowing BART to um, acquire parcels near their near their station that are you know vacant or underutilized and turn it into apartments as well um, because right now BART is by law is uh, forbidden from purchasing land for transit oriented development more than one quarter of a mile from an existing station so mm-hmm. just like to unpack that for a moment right like BART like a quarter mile is a very short distance um, so BART can't buy land that is probably a perfect there's a there's a really great site actually in oakland near the rockridge bart that's within a quarter mile it's a um old safeway that is now i think it's a dialysis clinic um but it's a big large parcel very close to rockridge bart um but because it's beyond uh, a quarter mile bart couldn't buy that and turn it into housing um they they're legally prevented from doing that and so this law actually applies um uh, th- th- most transit agencies don't even have the power to, to develop, to buy land for the purpose of transit development anywhere near their stations. Um, it, I, BART has a special privilege to do up to a quarter mile. But so, you know, one of our ideas is to, you know, give more transit districts um, the ability to buy land near their stations, not just their existing stations, but new stations that, that haven't been built yet get out ahead of the speculators and buy up some of that land so they can, you know, make community decisions. Like, do you want to, if, if, the, if they can get the land before it appreciates in value, th- suddenly BART, um, you know, can, can make these informed decisions by the public input to say, we're going to really prioritize affordability on this site. Um, we're really going to uh, prioritize like generating revenue through market rents. But if we don't have access to that public land, like it's private development is going to rule, rule the roost. So, um, yeah, one of our ideas is to like get rid of that requirement, say like make it a one mile radius uh, or something like that. And that I mean, that's the way that transit uh, agencies in in many other developed countries, including East Asia, um, Singapore, Korea, Japan, they use land value and real estate development by public or transit agencies to help support um, expansion and even operations. So BART is, 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 you know, they're doing a great job, but I, in my mind, we need to like make it easier for them, for their kind of the transit oriented development division to say like, you know, you're doing a good job, like keep it up. Like we're gonna give you, we're gonna allow you to buy more parcels uh, to do more of this kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I love, like you look at BART, they have a real transit oriented development team doing stuff they're kind of making waves in north berkeley they're actually kind of like you know really doing the fight vta uh the santa clara county agency a uh, lot less you know I, I think it's just a lot less ambitious and vigorous 
as Bart. They they have a TOD program, but like it's they have a lot of real valuable land. They're just not doing anything with it. They're understaffed and they kind of lack the vision. Uh, but just in general, like at least we have the vision. We should be empowering you. And uh, yeah, as you're saying, if you could only buy it after it's established or after it's you know official, everybody knows about it. Everybody's already bid it up to its maximum point already. Uh, it gets capitalized into the price up front. So they're not really benefiting if they're just buying it, you know, at the price. Maybe in the long term, hopefully it goes up. But you know, it's not it's not easy money. Compare that to was it uh, Fremont? Like it was like there was kind of an infill station. So between two stations, they're going to drop one down, and to acquire land there because they couldn't get ahead of it, they're paying top price, and it went up in value. Compare that to the counterfactual. If they were empowered more to buy land arbitrarily uh, for like future work, they could have bought that land a low price, dropped the station down onto it, and then suddenly, like, hey, free money is happening. That's yeah. how, in the history of good transit in the U.S., like, talk about, like, just, you know, kind of sustainable streetcar development or you look at like uh, there's case studies of, like essentially every good transit system in East Asia like they all do this this is what you need to do is to kind of get that land uplift and we just we don't make it legal yet and what's nice I guess about this is you could change that I think to have Bart just be able to kind of get land and enjoy the land value uplift and it's not going to be the like apocalyptic battle of taking on Howard Jarvis They'll probably oppose it, but it's kind of like they're not going to like it's not going to be uh, a huge they're going to take this away from you kind of uh, blood and soil stuff they do with every kind of tax fight. Yeah, yeah, I, I, it's a, definitely more of a technocratic fix that can definitely kind of help out the BART in, in the long term. Um, and so like, those are the types of things that you know, we should be looking at as a matter of course before this link 21 is to like, what are we doing? What, like, what, what is BART doing well? They're actually doing a pretty good job of running this TOD program. And so how can we make that better? And if we're going to, you know, build all these new stations and make, make service a lot better and have better headways for all these stations, like the value of the land of the existing station is going to get better. So let's, let's capitalize on that as well. So, you know, this is part of just like, you know, a suite of packages that we can allow a public agency like BART to kind of realize um, value, make their stations better, make the area around, like make it more inviting to want to uh, go to a, a place like this. Like, I gotta say like some of the, the station planning in, um, in, in the VTA BART extensions has not been great just because it's been so monumental. And I think that is going to be that is kind of one of the tail risks that we have to think about with this link 21 program. When we talked about um, the BART, uh, the original BART tube and uh, the, the inflation kind of wrecking the construction budget for that. And, you know, we see that now with all of our kind of mega transportation projects. And we just were seeing with the BART to San Jose extension with just the massive cost overruns over design, um, tubes and um the san jose stuff is so ridiculous what a bunch of crappy stations they're gonna build yeah i mean it's been a fort they there was like a there was a twitter thread um about uh one of the station a couple of the station designs and uh vta got roasted for it and you know there's right up in the mercury news about it but like i think that the problem is that like there's this culture of relying on consultants and then also not, not being willing to make kind of informed hard choices about 
well, this option, you know, might be politically expedient now, but it's going to increase the cost of the project by 5x. And, uh, you know, we could we could just pay these businesses that might be disrupted by a state like station development. We could pay them for to just stay closed for two years or whatever it is. And that would be cheaper than paying the double you know, the double wide tunnel that some of the, the VTA is contemplating. But like the same thing with the mezzanines, they're building these gigantic mezzanines in the stations where they're having to remove uh, like just so much dirt and build these big concrete bunkers in the middle of downtown San Jose. And Ride those an escalator are the- for like five minutes to get to your, your yeah. train. Yeah. Just imagine the, yeah. Trying to catch the, a tra- trying to catch a train on time, but like, that, those are the kind of things that we also have to keep an eye on if we want Link 21 to 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 really realize its potential is like if San Jose continues to build uh, or VTA continues to build stations like this and if BART like tries to build like stations like this or tunnels like that, the, the land value that we capture is not going to um, be as useful because we're over engineering, over designing these stations. So, um, you know, I'm looking, I'm hopeful that there is some, some interest um, at the regional level about finding ways to control costs uh, for these infrastructure projects, especially if like now we're contemplating Link 21 and uh, all this investment is now is, you know, when we really should start thinking hard about how do we uh, how do we resolve these issues? Well, I think so many people have like a sense of um, fatalism about it. It's like, well, well, it always comes in over budget. It always comes in uh, behind schedule. And, you know, understanding from my perspective, like the thing that's driving the the cost overruns and the the schedule overruns is the fact that we don't invest in the public service for developing these projects. So much of it is farmed out to consultants. Um, and we really need to start, if we're gonna invest in 40 years of subway building and rail building in Northern California and California generally, we need to make like being a, a, a project manager or a, a development manager, or a contract manager for a rent. We need to have like the kind of like civil service, pride in civil service that places like Spain, Germany, and France have, and Japan and Singapore, that they have for people who design and build subway stations. Um, and right now, we I don't think we've invested um, in the public sphere into uh, saying that like, this is, we're going to pay you well, you're going to be, you know, you're going to get, um, uh, you're going to be well compensated. And it's, it's a prideful thing to work for BART doing this and not some consultant that's going to charge uh, three times as much. And so yeah. investing in the public sphere. And then the other thing is realizing that like, you know, BART is going to do this mega project, but there are all kinds of other transit agencies that, you know, they might not have the expertise on staff to do even a bus rapid transit project or a small light rail project. And that we might want to start thinking about like, how about we just have some like infrastructure state capacity at the regional level? Um, like have like MTC have these project, like the kind of project manager, a team that can go in and like, be like, Oh, you're thinking about doing a BRT project. Well, we know exactly how much those costs. This is what utility relocation costs this is what you should consider in terms of like route planning, like to, to help like AC transit or VTA or SFMTA or, or wherever to say like, you don't need to have the experts for BRT or, or subway construction on your staff. You're just one transit agency. Like we should just invest in that capacity at the regional or the state level 
um, because you know otherwise it's going to be we're just going to keep getting the kind of the consultant merry-go-round. Yeah, it's a bunch of people like they just want you know the the cheapest, easiest thing that will kind of meet spec. I mean, like VTA, it's very like a lot of people are under capacity. It's people from like Monte Sereno serving on the board for VTA. It's just people who don't care about good growth and transit. And like you just see it. I, I mean, uh, well, I don't have time to write here, but seamless. You know, that's a really good potential for the entire Bay Area transit. And we'll talk about more of that in the show uh, in the future. But I just want to kind of pitch this to you of like kind of how I see a kind of a great realignment of political will and everything uh, kind of based upon what we saw behind Prop 15. We saw like school labor unions. We saw like a lot of good, you know, kind of public sector, you know, kind of we need this money for for the for the community. But okay, so. Right now, if you talk about like kind of why is transit so expensive, like to build, why is it doing bad? Like no one really has the right incentives to do it well. Because if you talk about like who is saying we need to run this like a business, it's a bunch of right wing anti tax ghouls who just hate the government doing anything. And those people are never going to be good at all. They're just going to oppose everything, good or bad. Then you have kind of like if you look at the only example of like what when did we actually have state capacity to do infrastructure at scale, it was uh, like it's ugly, like racialized history of urban renewal. And like you look at places like, you know, the Chamber of Commerce, you look at the, the early days of SPUR, which, you know, stands for urban renewal. Like these like it was like clearing neighborhoods, building highways for and it's good for business. And who was opposing it would be like effectively the equity people. It's like, hey, all this is bad. Let's not do the highways. And that has been our history for half a century. And it's limited. I'd say the realignment I'd like to see is if you do value capture right, there's essentially a big pool of money coming in. And you don't want to see that just go to business. You don't want to see it just go to the elite bureaucracy. You want to see that filter into communities for affordable housing for the benefit. And I think every time anything happens, there should be the idea of the money faucet turns on, but we want to see more for the community and sustainable community development. We want to divvy it up in the right way. We want to keep costs down because that means more affordable housing for our for our for our people, like for our and you know, just better stuff for everybody. And I mean I, I think not everybody's gonna be you know, kind of a uh, a project manager wonk, but I really think that if we have the idea that growth means, you know, if it is done in a democratic and, you know, effective way, this is a growth machine that is equitable instead of, you know, the anti-growth machine we have. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. Like the, you have to make the incentives for people who have suffered historic harms because of growth, either private sector or public sector like growth. They need to see that they're going to benefit from it um, in, in real tangible ways. And I think that's I think that's one of the appeals of something like value capture is that it doesn't necessarily all all that money doesn't necessarily have to go all of it to a particular rail provider or transit. Agency. You know, you could say, you know, 20 percent of the value capture is going to go back into the community in, in the form of, you know, they decide, like, do they want to prioritize affordable housing or uh, eviction council? Or, or free fares, for instance, you know, if, yeah, if reduced or free fares, if you want to say we want protected bike lanes or we want to preserve filtered housing that's affordable for people, 
like the, I think that is, I think that's the way that you can kind of realign people is to say like, here's, here's a big pot of money. And then the, the community is going to say like, this, these are our preferences. This is how we want to split it up. Um, and suddenly like they're benefiting from that public investment. Whereas before, as you said, like that, you know, the, that community created wealth is just flowing right into the pockets of private landowners. Exactly. Yeah. It's like you, you, you spend all this money on the great new, you know, riverfront, you know, stadiums and bayfront, you know, developments, but like that's them. It's not really a community value capture scheme. It's just, you know, it's like, oh, you'll, it'll trickle down in some way, but value capture, it doesn't trickle down. It goes right back to the public in ways that which if, you know, the right amount of accountability can be really big things. Uh, but uh, we're in the early days yet of all this stuff. But I think, you know, I'm encouraged by the fact that, you know, the old guard, the Western Center and Choo Choo and all this, they kind of said, oh, we're doing this is how we do stuff here. They fell flat in their face for AB 1401 and only the right wing ghouls voted with them. It's like, OK, like your entire way of thinking is dying let's get a new guard that actually has some imagination and some ambition and some, you know, hope here. So I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm pretty encouraged. How encouraged are you that, you know, you're seeing some, some change? Yeah. I, I think AB 1401 moving forward is really good. Um, I'd like to see, I, you know, I, I think what will be critical for the kind of broader value capture conversation will be to see first of all, how the BART board, um, you know, what happens when the BART board kind of is going to take a look at the draft value capture strategy um, that's being prepared by Link 21 staff, I think later this year, um, into the question of how aggressive is staff going to be in terms of, of their strategy for Link 21? Um, are they going to, you know, contemplate the, like the, the, the go big, you know, are they going to like think of like how we can really take on Jarvis? I don't think they'll use those terms, but like how they can take on Jarvis. Or is it going to be nibbling around the edges? Because you know we've seen, you know, as you said, we've seen the last fifty years of uh, treating value capture as nibbling around the edges, and it'll be necessary to kind of really push, push these agencies, push electeds, push uh, public officials to say, like, you know what, it's not acceptable to, you know, put this much money into infrastructure, infrastructure without a plan to really recapture it for the benefit of you know, the whole community. Yeah. And uh, as we wrap up here, just a bit more of like plugs once again. Uh, you go to uh, California Common Ground, that's cacommonground.org. Uh, there's a paper that you co wrote with uh, Joshua Hahn on uh, you know, value capture for transit. Uh, so that you'll find that there in the header. Uh, and information more about this uh, value capture org, California Common Ground. Uh, any, anything else you want to kind of point out? Yeah, just, um, you know. Stay tuned in whatever your uh, social media channels, but, you know, Common Ground will continue to to advocate for these policies. And we're looking forward to kind of um, broadening the coalition. So you know, if you want to reach out to us on the website and if you're interested in coming aboard, um, please do, because, you know, this is going to this is going to be a big campaign to, to, to really shift what's possible here. Um, and we need as many people as possible. Yeah, everyone from equity folks, environmental folks, uh, labor force. It's just, it's a big tent and everybody benefits from value capture. That's the whole idea, you know, so uh, cool. We'll look forward to talking more and uh, uh, everyone keep your ears open. So thanks a lot, Mark. We have been talking to Derek Sagehorn of East Bay for Everyone and Common Ground California about transit value capture. You can find that paper in the show description. 
And you can also find all previous episodes of this show at the website seethecat.org. This is a presentation of Casey Shiro. See you next